You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a Bloomberg scoop. Hackers masquerading as law enforcement tricked Apple and Meta into handing over customer data. We have all the details. Plus, Apple is cutting out the middleman, the iPhone maker developing its own payment processing technology, building a full in-house set of financial services offerings on top of its Apple credit card and wallet. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman will bring us his exclusive story. And Tesla's hidden competitive advantage. The electric car maker made a secret deal to help dodge the nickel crisis. Russia is one of the world's top suppliers. Now to that Bloomberg exclusive. Bloomberg learning that Apple and Meta provided customer data to presumed law enforcement officials who were really hackers in disguise. William Turton, our Bloomberg cybersecurity reporter, joins us now with that scoop. Will, how did the hackers pull this off? Hey, Emily, thanks for having me. So here's what the hackers did. They kind of exploited what some might call a loophole in the system. When you send a request, a search warrant or a subpoena to a company for data, that has to be signed by a judge. But if you send something called an emergency data request, um, that's not something that has to be signed by a judge. So what these hackers did is they broke into the email boxes of legitimate law enforcement agencies. And they sent emails posing as a legitimate law enforcement officer to these companies with a forged emergency data request. And as we're reporting today, the companies complied with those requests and actually turned over user data. What we don't know is just the scale of this problem. We've been hearing from sources that you know, it's much bigger than these companies. Um, and has a much bigger scope, and that's what we're trying to find out now. So is it understandable then that Apple and Meta could have fallen for this, or is this a major loophole in their systems? So, I mean, it cannot be overstated how complicated and difficult these processes are. The emergency data request, some will say, is a, is a very legitimate form for law enforcement to get information in times of crises, like a, like a terrorist threat where someone's life is in imminent danger. And that's exactly what the hackers do. In their forged request, they will say something along the lines of there's a terrorist threat, someone's life is in danger, someone's uh, you know at risk of suicide, and, you know, 
companies are expected to comply very quickly with these requests. Now, you know, I think as it's becoming clear, companies need to have more oversight and more verification that these requests are legitimate and are coming from real law enforcement officers. Now, according to your reporting, William, Discord had a similar issue. Also, Snap also got this request, but we don't know yet if they provided any of this information to the hackers. Are there other companies that could be looped into this? That's right. So yesterday, Brian Krebs reported that Discord uh, also, you know, was a victim of the same kind of scheme. We reported today that Snap received a Forge emergency data request, but we do not know whether they actually provided data. And yes, I'm hearing from sources that many other companies, even beyond tech companies, beyond social media companies, have been affected by this. Um, if anyone knows more, I, you should reach out to me because I would love to know more. I think this problem extends beyond just the two companies that we've reported on today. All right, Bloomberg's William Turton with that scoop. William, thank you. I want to talk more about this now with Wendy Whitmore, Senior Vice President for Unit 42, the threat intelligence team at Palo Alto Networks. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. What do you find most notable about how these hackers were able to pull these off with massive companies with very established systems? Yeah, Emily, great question. So I think the biggest concern here of these attacks is clearly how well the attackers understand uh, this potential vulnerability, this process of government requests to technology companies, social media companies, and understand it and are willing to uh, take the risk to exploit it. So talk to us about why it's so apparently easy to do this. I mean, some of the folks behind these attacks we're finding out are, are teenagers. Yeah, again, great question. So the interesting thing is it's not easy at all. This is relatively complicated. So first, uh, I would say the easiest part is probably for the attackers to get access to the data that they're stealing. Last year alone, our team identified over 2,500 breaches where there was stolen data leaked. So what the attackers do is buy this information for relatively inexpensive prices and then use that to test out uh, which kind of credentials they can use to legitimately break into organizations. Organizations. And in this case, they chose those to be law enforcement organizations. The complicating part is they have to understand that process, and then they have to be uh, willing to spend the time that it takes to, to do the social engineering aspects, understanding specifically who they need to contact at these organizations to make these requests, who the legitimate law enforcement officers are, and what their process is. So this is uh, certainly not an easy task for them to orchestrate, clearly being done by people with time on their hands. Well, to that point, the folks suspected in this particular case are minors located in the U.S. and U.K. I'm reminded of the Okta hack that we covered last week where, you know, the suspected mastermind is a teenager who still lives with his mom in England. What do you make of the fact that these are potentially very young people behind these very disruptive attacks? It's, it's incredibly concerning, right? Uh, we typically would see this level of attack orchestrated by an organization who's got clear objectives and clear financial backing. So the point is, these uh, the organization related to these attacks certainly has overlap with lapses and the activities we've seen last week. Uh, one of the things that they're doing incredibly effectively, and we see this in ransomware investigations as well, is they use uh, time demands as a way to force an organization to make a quick decision. We see that with these ransomware attacks when there's extortion involved, and we're seeing this work very well with these emergency data requests. 
Now, 600,000 open jobs in cybersecurity. That's what Bloomberg is reporting today, that there are 600,000 jobs uh, in the cyber threat landscape that are unfilled. Is that part of the reason we may be seeing an uptick in hacks? Well, I think you're seeing that. So there's no greater example of that uh, today and the challenges that we as an industry face than as it relates to Russia and Ukraine, right? Uh, the U.S. government has come out and provided a tremendous amount of recommendations and actions to be taken. But the reality is it's challenging for organizations across the world to implement all of them in a timely manner. Uh, it's much cheaper for the attackers to conduct these attacks, and it's much more costly and time and resource intensive for organizations to defend against them today. So yes, absolutely, that's a concern. Now, we're understanding that the information that was shared with these hackers includes addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses. How damaging could the release of this information be? How could the hackers use it? Well, I think that there is some concern in terms of people being uh, cyber-stalked, being uh, that translated to physical attacks, right? So uh, when you look at these, uh, the, the people that are behind this, oftentimes, so they're selling this information for a really inexpensive amount, right? The equivalent of about 150 US dollars. So uh, that can be used in a wide variety of ways. We want to make sure that people are protected and, uh, you know, th that this data doesn't then translate to those type of tax. So certainly law enforcement is going to be working very closely with these organizations uh, who had uh, released the data to make sure that they can uh, protect people. What do you see as the learnings and takeaways here? I mean, is this a new tactic that we're going to see more cyber criminals start exploiting? Yeah, I think it's it's become pretty widespread, right? So these lapsus group attacks over the past week saw uh, the you know which you mentioned, right? To Okta, to Microsoft, um, the level of sophistication was largely in the social engineering, so the human to human aspects, as well as the persistence uh, of their ability to figure out once they got inside an organization how they could actually get to the data that they needed. And so, uh, what the the good news on that is that that largely relates to defense in depth strategies and best practices that we recommend to organizations, it doesn't often mean you have to buy millions of dollars of new technology, right? It means we have to get back to the basics and we have to make sure that, for example, if we're a help desk, that we are not uh, asking uh, identity verification questions of our employees. That's information that could be easily found on the internet. So we've got to continually focus on security awareness trainings for organizations and make sure that they're well implemented. As the war on Ukraine shows no signs of de-escalation, but Ukrainian forces and the West have really put a lot of pressure on Russian forces, do you see Russia resorting to more cyber attacks and getting more aggressive in the cyber landscape since we haven't quite seen as potentially devastating attacks from the Russian side as some were expecting yet? I think it's a likely scenario. Uh, one thing we know for certain is that the Russians have an incredibly formidable capability when it comes to cyber attacks and cyber warfare. So we are encouraging all of our clients, as well as non-clients, to be prepared uh, to make sure that they've got uh, documented incident response plans in place, that they understand what roles and responsibilities their uh, employees have uh, across the board, so that if uh, these attacks do occur, that we've got a well-orchestrated response plan and we can contain, contain the damage as quickly as possible.
All right, Wendy Whitmore, Palo Alto Networks, always appreciate your insight on these incidents. Thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us. Coming up, Russia is one of the world's largest suppliers of nickel. It is a key component in batteries for electric cars. How Tesla struck a secret deal to keep supplies coming. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The SPAC market has been up and down, catching the attention of the SEC, which just announced a plan for new disclosure requirements. One company that just went public this week via SPAC is Starry, the broadband provider listed on the New York Stock Exchange just yesterday. The transaction implying a $1.76 billion value. We're joined now by Chet Kanogia, Starry CEO and co-founder. Chet, how'd you pull this off in the middle of all this market volatility and a war that's casting a great deal of uncertainty over the road? ahead? Yeah, we, uh, I think probably two or three factors that contributed to it. Number one, uh, a very uh, supportive investor base, uh, which I think is critical in this market and climate, obviously. Uh, and, and, and I think the basic for that support or the basis for the support, including the new investors that came in, is really the company's performance. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of sort of concept companies in the SPAC land, if you will, we, um, you know, we're a real company growing very rapidly, real revenues, real customers, very low customer base, massive TAM, um, uh, and, and a real bottoms-up analysis in terms of what the company uh, is going to be doing. So, uh, so I think the deal basically got done because of those parameters. So talk to us about the ambition here. You know, you have for many, many years wanted to close the digital divide and democratize access. What's the goal with Starry? What unmet needs do you feel like you're filling? So, uh, you know, it really depends on uh, geography, but in certain areas and in, in urban areas in particular, obviously in the rural areas, the government's had a lot of subsidy programs that provide connectivity because I think that's an important component for economic growth and economic engine and, and healthcare, education, as you know, the pandemic taught us. But there's an affordability problem uh, in urban areas, uh, and um, uh, affordability ranges from people that, uh, you know, are looking for a better product that without the television bundle, which is t typically how the cable companies sell it, or affordability for folks that can certainly, uh, you know, utilize the technology and connectivity, uh, but, you know, it are, you know, can't pay, but the government is helping with that, with subsidizing with a program called ACP, or uh, Affordable Connectivity Plan, 
so end game for us is really, you know, core belief for the company is like what we're doing is a great work uh, in terms of providing, you know, real use case, real resource to consumers, taking care of them, uh, elevating the experience. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, by doing all of these things, we're moving um, society forward in terms of at least economic opportunity and availability of, of uh, resources to, to folks that would otherwise either be paying uh, over too much or they would be paying um, or not getting the product at all because, uh, you know, they happen to be in a difficult time in their lives. How is what you're offering, this personalized network service, different from what traditional legacy broadband providers offer, aside from price? And is this something that customers really want? So, yes, there are different cohorts of customers that really uh, look for different things. So I'll give you an example. You know, if you're a gamer, for example, you may be interested in different kinds of latency statistics. You work from home potentially, and, you know, cable broadband network will give you, you know, a very marginal uplink, and we can offer you several hundred megabits uplink or up to gigabit uplink. Uh, so all of these things, you know, our bet is ultimately technology will lead towards personalization and, and what people are willing to pay and, and what they want. Uh, and that's uh, that's the purpose. And then that's how we architected the network is in a highly personalizable way, which is very different than your traditional broadband network that tends to be one size fits all, you know, teaser rates that start at whatever number and then go up 50, 60% the year after. You know, all what I will say, you know, 100 year old business practices that really don't belong in a, in a modern ecosystem. All right, Chet Kanogia, Starry CEO and co-founder. We'll keep watching uh, as you continue trading. Thank you so much for joining us. The war in Ukraine is raising anxiety across the electric car industry, Russia being one of the world's biggest producers of nickel, a critical component in EV batteries. Sources tell Bloomberg that Tesla, however, has been signing deals to circumvent any supply disruptions. I want to bring in analyst Ashish Satya, who leads our commodities and energy research at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Ashish, thank you so much for joining us. So according to our reporting, Tesla has been scouring the globe since last year for deals on Nickel, in particular, has struck a deal with Vail, a multi-year supply deal that involves nickel coming from Canada. What is it you think that made this deal possible? Uh, good evening, Emily. So essentially, nickel prices are already rising slowly and steadily before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And part of the reason for that was a tight market for class one nickel, which is predominantly used in manufacturing batteries, which go into electric vehicles. Now, Russia was uh, supplying almost 17% 17 of this uh, class one nickel. So a potential disruption there uh, definitely caused an impact on the market. Tesla's strategy, although has been uh, quite straightforward for the last year and a half or so, they've been scouring, as you rightly said, for nickel around the world. Deals with BHP last year and another deal with uh, Telon Metals and Rio Tinto earlier this year. So they're trying to kind of uh, secure their place in the supply chain and integrate vertically as much as possible. In reality, it's the battery metal supply chain in general that is under pressure. How concerned should governments be and companies beyond the electric car market be? 
So absolutely right, Emily, that uh, there's a lot of pressure in the supply chain around the world. Um, interestingly, even in the absence of any long-term net zero carbon emission policies, we expect demand for lithium-ion batteries to rise almost nine times between now and 2035, and particularly driven by electric vehicles. So commodities like lithium, cobalt, nickel, magnes uh, will be required in large quantities. And actually, the supply of these are in particular parts of the world which are sometimes not that robust in terms of governance structures or supply chain. And hence, governments and companies around the world are trying to take matters in their own, own hands to develop the supply chain either domestically or essentially create these partnerships around the world. Now, obviously, these companies can work to secure extra supplies of nickel or cobalt or lithium. What else can they do beyond that? Um, so I think two or three other interesting things they can do. The first one is um, they can use different battery chemistries to reduce dependence on one specific material or metal. For example, Tesla uh, has been using more of lithium iron phosphate batteries, which require less uh, nickel, although they have lower range and lower performance. <laughs> Um, there is a move towards using batteries which have higher manganese content and less nickel content. Um, the second thing that could be done is uh, building more charging infrastructure. If you build more charging infrastructure, you need uh, batteries with slightly lower range as well, perhaps. And the third thing that could be done is recycling. So um, from 2030 onwards, you will have a lot of batteries, um, large volume of batteries that would be available for recycling, and we probably need to make use of that. All right. Ashish Satya, thank you for that context there. Head of Commodities and Energy Research at Bloomberg NEF. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This week, I spoke exclusively with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi about the company's plan to, quote, out Amazon, Amazon. Take a listen. I think that Amazon has, is an incredible company and no one is ever going to replace Amazon. But we can essentially use our technology, local logistics capabilities to power the local merchant or restaurant to deliver anything within an hour, which we think is a delightful experience. Khosra Shahi says Uber's delivery business could eventually grow to be bigger than rides, the idea being that it doesn't deliver just food, but potentially anything. This coming at a time, though, when other delivery services are cutting back. Instacart slashing its valuation 40%, and the information reporting GoPuff plans to cut hundreds of employees. Here to discuss, Andrea Walney, general partner at Manhattan Venture Partners. And Andrea, you're an investor in Instacart. What do you make of, of Instacart's move here? Should we be worried about its business? Thanks so much, Emily. So overall, we're really not worried. I think generally, this act of actually reducing the valuation is very much so based on the value of the stock options that the company is issuing to their employees today and any incoming employees. We think this move is really smart for the, the hiring and recruitment of new employees because generally what employees wanna see is the upside, upside in their stock, right? They wanna see that there's gonna be value accrual once they join the company. So overall, we think that this is a move that made headlines because they were one of the first companies to do it amidst all the volatility in the market. And we just assume that many, many other companies are going to join suit in this. 
But doesn't it mean that anyone who exercised their shares at the original valuation, $39 billion, would be underwater now? Well, the folks that did exercise their stock options are probably there to hold on and see where the company goes as per their IPO and the plans there. So overall, with the lack of liquidity now leading up to the IPO, yes, those employees just have to bear with us and hold on. But generally, the tax treatment between the 409A, which is the valuation, right? That's the audit valuation that every company who is private has to do once a year at least between that spread of the 409A and where they actually sell the stock is what's really meaningful. So if we reduce that valuation price, it means that they can have more upside leading up to what they ultimately sell the stock at. Meantime, we just saw GoPuff planning to cut hundreds of employees, according to a report from the information, cutting $40 million in cost, 3% of their global workforce. Do you think we're going to see more companies slashing their valuations like Instacart and potentially going through these mass layoffs? Yeah, Emily. So I truly think that we're about to see a 180 reverse of the great resignation. I think many companies are using this opportunity of the volatility in the market to reduce spend, reduce OPEX, increase their margins, get to profitability and show both investors, private and public, that they can succeed as they grow, right? And so we do think that we're going to see a lot of companies, you know, further, even though we are expecting the opposite of the great resignation, we expect the talent pool and the recruitment landscape to be just as competitive as it ever was. And so with that being said, companies need to find really compelling ways to recruit and retain. And so with that, they are going to be looking for ways to show the talent pool that's out there that they can have an increase in the value of the stock they're getting issued. So we think there's going to be a lot more of the layoff news coming out. We expect a lot of companies are having conversations with the board of directors to say, what should we do around our valuation? Should we bring it back down to real levels? And then how should we plan ahead for our hiring plans going into the rest of the year? Generally, companies like Instacart last year were really, really focused on profitability and broke even because of that. And now companies like Instacart are focusing on top line, continuously the focus on growth, and then furthermore, really just focusing on that uh, reduction of um, spend across the board. So profitability is key, margins are key, and retaining talent from the executive level on down is also incredibly important. Now, public companies in this space also seeing their stocks slide. Uber and DoorDash, for example, down year to date. I'm curious what you think of Uber's vision here to be the future of driving retail. The, you know, the idea that they could deliver something faster, for example, than Amazon. And if you think that's going to work? Well, Uber certainly has the fleet capacity to, be, capacity to do so, but these days their fleet is suffering. So I do think they're going to have to uh, revitalize the way that they really incentivize the driver base and furthermore, increase their own margins because it's not like Uber has always been the company to prove that they understand how to focus on unit economics. So generally, though they have the fleet and logistics down, um, it's not there to say that they've proven themselves as it relates to being able to scale the logistics side of the business. So I think overall, they have a fighting chance, but Amazon has always been the clear winner in this category and is investing a lot in this space. So I think 
from a bets perspective, we're looking at where Uber can sit, but overall, Amazon has always been the leading category winner here. Is there a cautionary tale here, Andrea, for investors and for employees and prospective employees? I mean, we all thought valuations were getting pretty hot towards the end of last year. And now, you know, at least as you're saying, we're going to see a lot of companies bring those numbers down. Yes. So overall, I think the cautionary tale to see here is that these companies that are raising money from big crossover funds. And when I say crossover, I mean the funds that are the mutual funds, they're the hedge funds that invest in both private and public companies. And then they really hold on to those positions once the company goes public. Those crossover investors have a war chest of a ton of capital to deploy, and their risk profile is very, very different than a traditional venture investor or retail investor. So what I say to investors is that we have to really look out to say, for the late stage companies that are raising money, um, and furthermore, just sitting on their own war chest of a balance sheet, those companies really raised a lot of rounds from those crossover investors who can weather the storm and plan on holding on to those positions and setting up arbitrage opportunities long after the company goes public, which is a very different strategy than a traditional venture investor, right? Traditional venture investors, their role is primarily to distribute and cash out once a company has a lockup uh, and the lockup expires. And so I think that tale is that, you know, measure the risk profile, measure risk tolerance, you know, batten down the hatches. But furthermore, we're always going to be looking for companies in the venture community that are investing into growth, increasing their margins, and showing that they can become profitable if and when they want it to be. So are you saying, Andrea, that some of these big crossover funds, I'll just throw a name out there, like Tiger Global, are they driving up valuations in an unhealthy way? I think that overall, Tiger Global and many other businesses that are operating similar to theirs in the venture and crossover space were the ones that have had war chests that are sizably larger than most traditional venture funds. And so in the last few years, they've proven that they can be very, very competitive because their strategy is so focused on arbitraging opportunities once companies go public. So overall, I don't think anything Tiger has been doing from an activity perspective is been predicated on them trying to drive up valuations. They've been very competitive for that reason. But for now, it seems like groups like Tiger and others are very much so focused on uh, making sure that they kind of sit back, see where things pan out, and they're not as focused on driving up valuations or putting all their bets in the private markets in recent days. All right, Andrea Walney, general partner at Manhattan Venture Partners. We'll be watching to see if some of the stuff you've predicted comes true. Coming up, the future of decentralized wireless. We're going to talk with Noble Labs about their recent $200 million funding round and how they plan on using that to expand their crypto wireless network. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. 
That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Helium, the creator of a blockchain that powers a decentralized wireless network, just announced a $200 million raise in funding led by Tiger Global and Andreessen Horowitz, valuing them at $1.2 billion. Helium also changing its name to Nova Labs. I want to bring in Nova Labs CEO Amir Halim for more on all of this as part of our crypto report. So walk us through how a crypto wireless network actually works. Yeah, so I think that the, the re, really the easiest way to think about what Helium does is it empowers ordinary people, everyday people, to participate in the telecom business. Right? This is the most entrenched um, industry that's almost impossible for like a regular person to participate in. Uh, and what Helium has really part, pioneered is the ability for really everyday people to become part of the telecom business um, with this sort of decentralization and this crypto twist to it. So everyday participants buy a little piece of hardware called a hotspot. Uh, you can think of it as a miniature cell tower, um, and they earn HMT, which is the, uh, the Helium token for providing network coverage that other people can use. That's, that's sort of the simplest way to think about what it does. What are some of your first use cases and customers? Yeah, so there's been some interesting ones. I mean, the, the network today is focused on the Internet of Things, right, which is mostly sensors, uh, small devices that are battery powered. And so we've seen everything from uh, drone delivery, so packages being delivered by drones that are orchestrated through the Helium network, precision agriculture, things like wildfire monitoring, uh, connected rat traps. You know, there's a, the, the number of use cases is extremely broad, and IoT as a category has been... Uh, one that has really lacked um, a network that supports the kinds of applications that we're now seeing get built. So it's we're really starting to see like the transformation of, of an idea, which was IoT 10 years ago, to uh, to the reality, which is people and, and businesses starting to deploy sensors that solve you know, real problems. So is the goal here to take share from major wireless carriers? And how do you plan to do that? You know, I, th I think the, the goal really is to try and build an alternative to what we have today, right? Like the, the, the internet, or access to the internet has been something which has been so difficult uh, to separate from um, a, a sort of small constituent of, of companies that sort of own access to the internet. It's incredibly difficult to, to decentralize that way due to the, so many different modes, whether it's spectrum, whether it's physical access. Uh, and so what we've seen now is uh, the sort of convergence of all these different technologies, including crypto, uh, that makes it possible now for us to provide an alternative that is completely open, that is very private, that is very secure, uh, and that is really owned by the people rather than a small group of, of companies that typically have a stranglehold in this industry. Now, given your fundraising announcement today, $200 million, including from Tiger Global, we were just having a conversation earlier with Andrea Walney at Manhattan Venture Partners, who maintains that some of these bigger funds like Tiger Global are driving up valuations because they simply have so much money to plow into startups. What do you make of that critique? And do you think it applies at all to Nova? If you look at the telecom industry, I mean, it is one of the few industries that is valued in the you know, trillions of dollars, right? And so the, the opportunity here is so large 
uh, that I think it is quite difficult to ascribe a valuation to it, right? So, so obviously, obviously I'm biased and I'm, I'm not going to say that we're overvalued or anything like that, but I, I think the opportunity that we're, we're looking at is so big uh, and so unique, right? I think Helium is one of the few crypto projects that has a real tangible, like, you know, real world use case uh, that everyone can understand, right? Like people get to participate and become basically a little, a miniature cell tower, right? And, and so if you think about how that grows, you know, today the network is focused mostly on IoT, uh, but as you think of the expansion, there are now something like 20,000 5G hotspots being deployed. And, you know, we, we expect there to be other types of wireless network uh, that get built on top of Helium 2, whether that's Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, 6G, or any other uh, future technology. Meantime, we are seeing companies more broadly slash evaluation, plan for layoffs. We're, we're in the middle now of, of what seems to be a market downturn. How are you, you know, are you changing your strategy at all or being more conservative with your cash as you navigate these macroeconomic conditions? You know, I, I think we've generally been the believers in small teams that, that can do big things. And, you know, today we are 60 or so employees and, and looking to grow. Um, but, I, you know, I think the, the philosophy of the company has always been that small teams can do lots of big things. Uh, and that has allowed us to be very flexible in, in different economic conditions, right? Like we aren't looking to add 2,000 employees and, and put ourselves in danger that way. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure for, on startups to, to show growth in, in multiple directions. And one of those is, uh, is headcount. Um, and so we're, we've always been careful about that. And I, I think that will serve us well going forward because we built this culture of, uh, of, of trying to be disruptive this way. And as a result of, of being able to use crypto economics, you, you really get to build an entire community behind you. You know, so the size of the actual, you know, founding team or the core team matters a hell of a lot less because you've got, you know, 600,000 plus hotspot hosts uh, who are really the ones that actually running the network, who own the network. And that's, you know, those are the numbers that matter rather than, than our individual headcounts. All right. Interesting. Amir Halim, CEO of newly branded Nova Labs. Thank you for joining us. Apple is developing its own payment processing technology and infrastructure for future financial products, according to Bloomberg sources. This as the iPhone maker is trying to reduce its reliance on outside partners over time. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman for this scoop and why. Mark, what's the plan here? The plan is to bring the underlying infrastructure, the underlying processing, the underlying you know, development process for Apple's future fintech products, things beyond Apple Pay, things beyond the Apple Card and the Apple Cash Card and the Wallet app in-house, right? Right now, as we know, Apple has a few partners in the fintech space, Goldman Sachs, Core Card, Green Dot Bank, and a few others. They want to bring that underlying technology that they leverage from those partners in-house for the next suite of Apple financial services. So who does this hurt? Definitely would hurt Core Card, right? Every credit card, most financial products, they require what's known as a core processor or is it payment processor. That's the engine that allows banks to either approve or reject a transaction. Now the core processor, core card in this case, does a lot more. They handle disputes, they handle parts of customer service through Goldman Sachs, uh, they handle other underlying infrastructure for the financial system. And you saw their stock dropped, I believe, more than 10% this morning on the news of the story. 
That's because investors in the company and analysts know how important Core Card is to the Apple Card and Goldman Sachs. Now, Apple's building their own full-on replacement for the work done by Core Card, meaning Core Card won't be Apple's partner in all likelihood in future fintech products. Apple will be going at it alone. So this will be Apple's biggest foray yet into the world of finance. I mean, it sounds like it's not going to be easy. Are they going to be able to pull this off? This is a multi-year effort with many engineers and other people across Apple and all sorts of teams across the company. They're investing hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, in this. You saw an acquisition recently called Credit Kudos from the UK. Now, that company has technology to help determine credit scores. That's part of Apple's push, right? This is all part of the same thing because Apple will, for the first time, also be working with credit bureaus to make lending decisions and approval decisions for fintech product applications for the first time. Right now, they go through Core Card and Goldman Sachs to work with the transunions and Equifaxes of the world. Now they're trying to build that on their own as well. So this is a major, major effort, very much underlying the whole future plans Apple has. And you know, there's a few services Apple has in the works right now that go well beyond Apple Pay. They're working on a Buy Now Later program, actually two Buy Now Later programs to compete with the firm and others. That will launch you know, this year or next. And you're also seeing them work on a hardware subscription service, which also is going to rely on this new platform, particularly for subscribing monthly to an iPhone. Quickly, when can we expect the first product that will rely on this new system? So Buy Now, Pay Later will be the first product, and that will launch either this year or next. All right. Mark Gurman with yet another scoop. Thanks so much, Mark, as always. Thanks. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the Terminal, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, anywhere you get your podcast for this daily news roundup. Catch it every day. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.